Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Reese Shearsmith, whom my North American listeners may recognize from his appearances in Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End, or from Ben Wheatley's A Field in England and High Rise, or that one episode of Doctor Who. And of course, my UK listeners will know him as a member of the League of Gentlemen, alongside Mark Gaddis and Steve Pemberton. Shearsmith and Pemberton then made the series Psychoville, and their latest collaboration is an anthology show called Inside Number 9, which just finished its third series on BBC Two. Reese picked Theatre of Blood, Douglas Haycock's 1973 tale of horror about a stage actor who returns from the grave to exact a literally Shakespearean vengeance on the critics who failed to fully appreciate his genius. With a bravura performance from Vincent Price as the murderous Edward Lionheart, and a supporting cast loaded with talent that includes Ian Hendry, Jack Hawkins, Michael Horder, and Robert Morley, Coral Brown, Diana Dors, Eric Sykes, Milo O'Shea, and an almost unrecognizable Diana Rigg, this is a film that overflows with Baroque delight, and also bloody mayhem, as it must. This is someone else's movie. Well, this film, like Jaws or... um King of Comedy. It's one of those films that, for me, if if, if it's on late nights, any time, I, I can't not watch it. You know, you turn it on and you've got to watch it through. Cause it, and it's been sort of in my life and, and with me as, as long as I can remember. I think I probably saw it too early to see it. I think I was probably nine or ten or something. Hmm. Late night on BBC Two when we used to have these horror double bills with the beer, a Universal and then the Beer Hammer, yeah. you know, or a, a colour film about one in the morning. Oh, so the more scary one. Really old yeah. classics. Yeah, yeah, classic um, pairings. And uh, Theatre of Blood was, was I think, one, one night in 1970-something. Um, and it just stayed... I remember it was the Arthur Lowe head cutting off the Cymbeline murder that was the thing that really stayed with me. And William Ho- um, Michael Horden as well, The First Death, which is so grim and... And real, and only stabbed, cut to shreds through this um, sheet of plastic. Oh, yes. So grubby and horrible, and, and I, it really stayed with me. But it was sort of elegant, so elegantly done. The, the pairing of the comedy, the sort of intelligence of the Shakespeare, and this sort of segmented portmanteau almost feel of the of the killings. You know, which is, I've always it's always appealed to me. Um, the Doctor Fives films are the same, and, and I was, yeah, I was about to say I was sure that this preceded the Fives films. Yeah, but it actually comes after. That's them. right. Yeah, Fives was seventy or seventy one and seventy two, yeah. and this is a, an ex- another one. Yeah, it's almost like a, it's not like a parody of it, but he'd done that sort of film already. Bit um, surprise, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, and he of course is just a, is brilliant in it. I mean, and to get to see him do the Shakespeare. Where I think he probably, you know, he absolutely relished it. And that cast, I mean, what a cast they! Apparently, they all ran round one another, asking, "Are you doing it? I'll do it then." <laughs> and so that's how they sort of got the upper echelons of all these great character yeah. actors. And it, it's a lovely idea. It's just very, very well written. And it's something we've just striven for in our work since. I mean, the the, the comedy and the horror, sort of the the, the reality of the of the horror. I mean, yes, it's all very heightened, but it's all very. Real, and I think at the heart of it, it's I absolutely love it because it's exactly how I, I, I am Edward, Edward Lionheart, <laughs> so I really feel the passion of his. Um, you know, you're on his side all the time. You want these horrible critics to get their just desserts, and it's so delicious that they, in turn, have these horrible murders that are not sort of. It's quite. And people think. I think if you remember or ask people to remember Theatre of Bloody, they think it's quite a campy film, and you know that's attributed to Vincent Price and that and Coral Brown and those people but ultimately it's very uh, nasty as well it's a nasty there's yeah. some really horrible killings in it I think it's, it's quite daring it must have been at the time well yeah that, I mean horror removed from its context is always going to be odd yeah if not necessarily directly translating into camp but yeah, there yeah. are things about Theatre of Blood like the Diana Rigg costumes the disguises that are I mean Jeff Lynn is yeah. running around helping Vincent Price kill people yes, it's very yeah. distracting that's right yes it's um, the meth drinkers themselves are and disturbing that, yeah. Pack, aren't they? yeah because I know the meth drinkers from Withnall and I that's where yes. that's where I'd heard about the wankers on the meths right yeah, yeah I had no understanding that this was a real thing a thing yeah absolutely yeah and 
even having seen theater, I'm sure I saw Theater Blood before I saw Women and I, I still didn't connect the two. Yeah, yeah, that pack of hounds that you know that are sort of like, you know, they are sort of the baying mob, and how they're disguised mm-hmm. in each segment. <laughs> yes, when they're, they're, when they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah, and that brilliant bit when they're in the um, when Robert Coote goes for his wine tasting as Oliver Larding. Yeah. And they're all there, sort of all dressed up like toffs, and yet completely pissed and drinking their purple drinks. It's it's horrible. It's sort of so out of control, and um, and yet you know they've got this this mob mentality, and you see it, you know the way they turn on in the end and and kill um, Diana Rigg and just smash her head in with the with the Critic Circle Award. Mm-hmm. It's sort of um, there are, you, you sort of get the feeling that they're really they're really brilliantly cast. Each one of them, they all look really great, and it was even. Um, is it Lutti Lemkow? That's his name. You know his face. Yeah, yeah, you know his face. He was in a lot. He was in a lot of. Um, I think he's in a Bond film. He's in lots of other stuff. But he um, crops up in that that pack as well. Yeah. And the woman who choreographed the activity. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. there. Yeah, and it's great. I mean, I think this, it's almost balletic though. Those killings and that and their um, that little pack of them is great. And it's it's a really fascinating time as well. The look of London in that in the seventies, the start of the. The National Theatre just coming up in in the 70s, and it's a very sort of grim-looking film. I mean, quite singular in the, all of its location, which I think is interesting. None of it is um, is any sets. It's all all filmed in various places. A lot of them have, have gone now. The old the Burbage Theatre where he kills um, Hector Snipe, the Putney Hippodrome, I think, which is gone now. But we're beautiful sets, you know, and really, I think, very handsomely filmed for a for a horror, and Robert Morley a fantastic in the uh, in the camp role of <laughs> of Meredith Meridew when he's killed, yeah. being made to eat his dogs. But I mean, the, I think it stayed with me because it's such a it's hard to do. And what we've done and tried to do often now our work is that fine line of, of sort of releasing tension with a laugh, you know. And that I think that's a a difficult thing that I think it gets right, and it's it's properly grim when it's when it's grim and then it's very funny with these performances they all have a twinkle in they are in their eye these these people that play in the um, the critic circle mm-hmm. and it's very enjoyable to watch i think yeah and it lets you root for them it lets you root for their suffering absolutely in a yeah. way that maybe it wouldn't if they were sympathetic characters yeah i mean it's a great scene when you first see them um well it's sort of it's in the midway through the film there's something very haunting very moving about this scene the way you where um, Ian Henry remembers the um, the day when they'd given the the Critics Circle Award not to Vincent Price and they'd given it to the brilliant young actor William Woodstock and Price turns up at the at the drinks afterward in an apartment very much like the one we're in now <laughs> and uh, he demands the award because he thinks he should have won it and they're all back again and three of them have already died so it's quite strange to see them all together yeah but um, and uh, in that moment you sort of see sort of each one in a, in a line reveal their characters it's really cleverly done as he wants another drink he's leering at the secretary and it's sort of very it's very sort of thumbnail sketches of each one of the flaws but you sort of see it um, very deftly done the script is great it's a very witty script I think you know to incorporate all the Shakespeare yeah but I've been obsessed with it forever I'm, I try to find the poster of the of, of um, Lionheart's Final season, which oh, is yes. which are the, all the killings in order, you know that sort of thing. And there's a brilliant bit at the end when he's got Ian Henry and he's doing King Lee and he's going to blind him like Gloucester, and he's tra- uh, and all of the um, the circle are back or the meth drinkers are pretending to be the circle with these cardboard cutout faces, mm-hmm. and they're brilliant. And I wish you could get them. You know, somebody's, I've got a doll of Lionheart, which you can buy a little dummy, action man dummy, but. Um, <laughs> In this day and age where you can get everything, you yeah. would have thought by now someone would have s- sought out those printed masks and I would be the first one to purchase them. <laughs> it, is, it is strange that, that both Theatre of Blood and the Fives films have sort of retreated, or yeah. receded, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's not a kind of horror that is popular anymore, yeah. although the self-aware aspect of it makes me... It made me think of Scream a number of times. Yeah. Because it's... It's all about the dread of the victim realizing that this is it. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the sort of the glee the killer takes. And now we have a tradition of either faceless silent murderers yeah. or, or unknowable infestation alien creature things. Of course, yeah. There's something a bit uh, in them, 
in the sort of episodic nature of it as well that's mm. a bit Final Destination. Oh, that's in true. In the deaths. Yeah. And even Saw, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way, yeah. when they're, what, what, how is he going to kill this one? Yeah. yeah. And that's, it's like Acme, isn't it? You, the Final Destination ones. You, if I, I asked, I think on Twitter, I said, can someone put one of the Final Destination deaths to Powerhouse, you know, the music from um, from the Acme um, cartoons and someone did it and it fitted perfectly it was brilliant I'm it was not surprised <laughs> it was completely fitted uh, I've, I've talked to a few of the people who've made the Final Destination right. movies or who've acted in them rather yeah. and they said that it basically are like they are these Rube Goldberg machines absolutely now, yeah where you're or what's the, the UK equivalent there's a oh, what's his name the the Designer of the, the insanely complex. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Rube Goldberg, completely. Yeah, and it's just how what elaborate. Yeah. And also, sort of second guessing the audience, thinking this is going to happen. Exactly. Being a new thing. That well, that's when they start taking you by surprise. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I find the Saw films really frustrating because every new one involves rewriting the old one. Yes, yeah, that's like to... um, strange Chinese puzzle boxes. Are mm. they? You think it's all sort of. Existential than the other one, yeah. It's like a, a Russian doll. Yeah. And, and the first two, I think, were quite clever. I lost, literally lost track. There was one where they were in a house, and I was thinking, is this? This is like an annex of all the other Saw films. They're in the same building, but not quite. And I, I, I completely was baffled. I, I think yes. I think in the end, it yeah. turns out that it's all. I mean, I love the idea that it's all one mall. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. three and four, I think, were the ones that are happening together, and two was happening just after. Right. And it's the big loop and. All you can think of is that for a man with terminal brain cancer, this guy was busy. <laughs> burning the candle. Absolutely, at yes, yeah. But we did something, I mean, not similar, but we had the puzzle. When we did Psychover, which is our series, sort of inspired by the box set idea of really wanting to write a cliffhanger each week and then you couldn't wait to watch the next one. It was yeah. when I was obsessed with 24 when it was good. And um, we had the puzzle of writing a, a, Chris, a Halloween special in the middle of series one and two without really advancing the plot because we knew that we had to, everything had to be back as it was oh, I see. for the start of series two. So what do we do with this middle thing that's going to happen to be an hour long? And we, we hit upon the idea of it being... You watch these three... It was a sort of a portmanteau again. We did three stories on Halloween night. Someone, these kids were trying to break into the, the abandoned, abandoned mental hospital that was in Psychoville. And then we came up with the idea that it was uh, all happening in the in the run-up to the end of the first series. So we, it's like we hadn't moved on any. We actually were in... So it's just parallel. In parallel, yeah. And we arrived back at the same point, so we hadn't moved on. It was a, it was a neat way of not having to advance the plot for that, for that reason. But similar to, I think, what Saw do, isn't it? Where they sort of unravel each time come out of you know you're sort of seeing a, a bit more of the picture yeah I think by the end of it it looks like a like a Pollock painting yeah is he still in it the man what's he called Tobin, Tobin, Tobin Bell, Bell. yeah, yeah he, still... he died at the end of three but he's still around how does he manage it <laughs> he's uh, he's been he's been really uh, open about saying that they just keep asking I mean I, I interviewed him once alright okay it was one of the strangest interviews I've ever done because I couldn't see the film um, it was some Comic Con fan expo thing. He was in town, and they were holding a day for a film that wouldn't open for two months, right. and probably wasn't done. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. given how quickly they produced them. Yeah. And do you want to talk to Tobin Bell? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> what can we talk about? Yeah. And of course, you can talk about anything because there are. I think this was for five. Wow. And so there were four behind it, and we just yeah, talked yeah. about it. And he said. I just assume I'm going to come back to Toronto in the spring and shoot one of these things until they tell me to stop. Wow. And he's happy to do that. And he did two more. Wow. And supposedly in this next one, which I think is called Saw Legacy, right. uh, there will be a character returning. And of course, how could it not be him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or in some way. I saw one when he was absolutely dead and, and there was a tape recording in his stomach or something. Yes, that's four. Right, okay. Uh, which I saw here. I saw that in London. Right, yeah. There was a juror for the London Film Festival <laughs> and I had to go. It was. This, it still remains the most expensive ticket I've ever bought really? for a movie. <laughs> wow. So I had to go see it opening night or the Saturday at the midnight show in Leicester Square. Wow, yeah. And it was something like 15 pounds. Oh my God. And yeah. it was not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it with eight other people who were willing to do that. <laughs> and they were disappointed. That yeah. was the thing. Like, I had to be there. Yeah, yeah. They had chosen it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. But, but it, does, it does make me think about the impossibility of remaking a theater of blood yeah. now without some sort of device. Because the, the other thing that's missing from contemporary horror, I think, is the concept of punishment. 
Yeah. And that's what Fibes does. And Absolutely. I mean, Revenge is the best yeah. um, plot device, you know, and it's always delicious to see. Yeah. And, and it's Fibes insanely are, worked out. Yeah, yeah. Impossible yeah, to escape. Impossible escape, yeah, that's it. And it's always... Um, you know, when it's very satisfying to see people being picked off, and especially if they're deserving. Mm-hmm. And um, and as a film critic myself, I find it like <laughs> I did find watching it again the other night, I got a little defensive. <laughs> I bet you were. Uh, yeah. But you know, I wrote it off by saying that they're theater critics. Yes, of course, it's a different yeah, world. They're different, but it is. It's remarkable how the audience. I mean, the audience is never on the side of a critic. In a I film. don't think there's anybody really in it that's. Um, Without redemption, or all the I mean, you're not expected to be on anyone's side. Perhaps Ian Henry's character, yeah. who's sort of the most, tries to argue the case. He has the voice of the of the rational. You know, yeah. he tries to, as he says of, of Lionheart, he tried to. Uh, he only ever um, played Shakespeare, yeah. and a truly great actor illuminates the present as well as the past. Yeah. Says, Which is to goad him into the twentieth century. Yeah, it is a beautiful speech. It's yeah. also completely overstates the responsibility of the critic which is, yeah. which is wonderful because only a filmmaker would think that <laughs> critics are trying to send them secret messages yes yes exactly yeah but and equally um, Price gets the brilliant speech about destroying people's lives and you, you, you can't create yourself so you have to you destroy everyone's lives yes. it's, it's, it's very sort of satisfying to hear that, that side of it because you don't really hear it very often especially sure. being killed I was very intrigued when they did the national did a play version of it I heard 2005 it. Jim Broadbent was Lionheart oh my and Rachel Sterling played Edwina so the daughter of, of um, Diana Rigg I could watch that and it was good I went to see it I was so excited to see it in fact we were asked to sort of be consultant consultants on it it was um, and we didn't quite ever get involved in it because we didn't Works fully convinced it would work as a play, and it was a, yeah. it was good, but it wasn't. It was just wasn't the film. You could never do it. The theatre looks brilliant. They'd sort of created a very old, um, broken down proscenium arch for the for the national, and it was. And Jim Broadbent was good, but he sort of misfired. I felt because he played Lionheart as a bad actor, so he was really. Deliberately, sort of mangling the speeches, and it was a little bit. I think Vincent Price got it right because he was—he did it for real. He tried to do the, you know, the speeches at the best, and they were very moving, and it was great. But I think he sort of just played a parody of an actor, and it was a bit too. It was an easy sort of choice, I think, to make, and it wasn't quite. Didn't quite work. I was interested to see how critics would respond to it mm-hmm. if I was reviewing it, thinking, "Don't dare we not review it? Because <laughs> we're killed." But it was. Um, <laughs> They slightly changed it. It was more about theatre. It was like reviewers for various newspapers like The Times and The Guardian. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, they were being picked off one by one. They killed less people, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, but they didn't do uh, the Othello. Cause they, and they, yeah, they got rid of a few of the, the, the deaths. But uh, it was fine. It was a slightly unsatisfying evening, I felt. I would think. I mean, yeah, just... I think the greatest tightrope walk in the film is that we can't tell if Lionheart is terrible or good. Yeah. Half the time. I think that's exactly right, yeah. It's the... Because that in itself is a Hamlet reference, you know? Yes, yeah. But North North by Northwest. Yeah. And having Price, if nothing else, be delivering when he's doing those speeches. Yeah. It's all about how they're received and they're going to seem terrifying and... Also moving the, the the idea that he can work emotion into it, yeah. because we ultimately know where he's coming from. Like he is the wronged. He's he's lashing out, shall we say? Yes, he's yeah, deliberately yeah. overreacting. Yeah. But he is wronged and feels that he is. You know, the, all the great villains are the ones who think they're right. Absolutely, yeah. No, he's. Um, you know, you, you I think you are always on his side. Interestingly, we had. Um, it's such. I mean, what's great about the, that film is that it's so of its time, and that, that cast are great and all in their prime. You know, they're all, even down to Dinah Rigg, um, Dinah Dawes having that great part as the as the, <laughs> the cook holding wife, even though she's not. She's just having a massage. But um, that is again, that's a joke that would have to be very different in a present. <laughs> yes, day. yeah, absolutely. But um, David Warner told me because we had him in. Um, number nine he was in the League of Gentlemen film as well but he told me the other day very casually it was literally only the other day he was meant to be the Ian Henry part he was offered really? the parts of um, of um, Sultry and uh, it would have been great to have him because then it would absolutely you know him in that part being the young 
um, youngest of the critic circle, the, the Hamlet of his generation playing yeah. that part, but he couldn't do it, he was doing the play. So we got Ian Henry, who was also brilliantly iconically 70s as well, and he's great in the part, but I was like, yes, I can see that. And you'd have had David in his prime, and you know, when he was looking like David Warner, you know. Right. But Ian Henry looks like a critic. Yes, he does, yeah. Henry looks like a writer. He does, yeah. Slightly unkempt, a little balding. <laughs> yes, he's perfect. In there, yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. But, um, yeah, it's, it's forever endlessly um, watchful, I think, just for the, the performances. They're all great in it. It's lovely to see... You know, I, I like um, right back to Magnificent Men and the Flying Machines or the, you know, Monte Carlo or Bus, where you have teams of people. Right. And that, you know, in, in a similar way, this film ticks that box for me that you get these great character actors that you sort of dip in and out of. And each one gets their bit. You know, it's great. I'd love to, if it was. The, uh, the game is to play it now and think who you'd cast in, the, in yeah. those parts, isn't it? Of course. Well, I, it is yeah. a game I play with anything older than the mid-80s. Yeah, yeah. Just generally. And, and what would it be now? Who would be your Lionheart? Where would you... Yeah. Be? I know. It's, who I mean, had Brenna, obviously. Yeah. Well, he but he's it, almost he? a little too young. Yeah, possibly a little bit too young, yeah. And maybe, like, McKellen would be too old. But... Mm. Oh, Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Patrick Stewart would be good. Um, Derek Jacobi, mm. Maybe. He's little though. Mm. Could you believe it visually? Yeah, and then you want someone with a bit more clout, don't you? Yeah, it'd be hard. There was talk, I, I remember hearing that um, it could have been complete rumour that uh, Robin Williams had some interest in doing it. Really? Yeah, in playing, because it's a delicious part to play all those characters, isn't it? In, sure. in, when you're doing the Shakespeare. I don't know whether that's true or not. And I know Steve Coogan as well had an interest in I think had the rights for a bit. That would make sense. That would be quite good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Especially after Dr. Terrible. He yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He could pull yeah. the period off. And I think you'd have to do it in period. I don't yeah. know that you could do it now. No, it'd be a slightly different scene, wouldn't I mean, it? You no. wouldn't believe the critics have the power to ruin anyone. No. Uh, it wouldn't be critics in the same way. It would be some blogger, wouldn't it? It'd be somebody yeah. online that you track down like a, a troll. Yeah, and then you're tilting into Seven territory where yes. everything is Baroque. Although I suppose Saw, again, you know, that is the device. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of... Well, everyone's a critic these days. Yeah, you'd never run out of bodies, <laughs> exactly. Ah, uh, that could be fun. Yeah. But the... The material, the concept, is rock solid. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is as old as Shakespeare. You know, like the idea it really is. Yeah, it's great. Seeking and revenge. Yeah, and they, um, you know, in its own way, it's in itself enacting those Shakespeare's being housed in the idea of a series of Shakespearean deaths is in itself Shakespearean. Exactly. Yeah. He's a he's a Shakespearean character. Yeah. Well, great drama of it. While I was watching it, just this last time, I realized that what's missing is the Tempest. Yeah. But. He is Prospero. Yes, and, he sort of is. And the yeah. Meth Drinkers are Caliban, collectively. Yeah. And I don't even know that that was intentional. It's yeah. Just, it's just, it, it, you start to see the patterns. And Absolutely, yeah. I mean, is, when he does Brave, oh, Brave New World, isn't that, is that the Tempest, isn't it? And that's when he... Just that one line. I think right? it's, yeah. Well, yeah, at least it's a line from it, isn't it? Yeah, when, yeah. He, when he emerges in the mud, when he's, you've thought he's died. Yeah, maybe that's why I made the connection, Perhaps, too. Perhaps, yeah, it could be. But yeah, it's, it's definitely there, isn't it? Yeah. But Ooh, um, Michael Fassbender could play Henry's role. So you've got, yes, you've got nerd cred for uh, Patrick Stewart <laughs> and, uh, or God, McKellen and, and Fassbender in the same film as rivals and, and yes. Yeah. That See? would be great. It sells it? itself. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a great plot and a great device, and, and you know, what a cast you could create with it. It's sort of on a place, isn't it, to, do, to be re remade. I'm surprised no one's thought of it. Yeah. But you're right, it would need a rethink, I think, uh, how to... Um, couldn't quite be the same yeah. thing, because the, the targets are... Yeah, the parameters have changed, haven't they, now? So yeah. everybody, so everyone is a... Unless it was just NASA. I mean, I remember I had a conversation with Coogan about it, and he was saying, oh, you know, I, want this, I want the scene where... He's got the critic tied up, and he's got, he's got his review, and he's saying, you said there are many reasons why this doesn't work. Just give me three, and I won't kill you. <laughs> he's like, and he's sort of like literally having the argument with the person trying to justify his, his words. Yeah. And it could be a very funny, very funny scene. So yeah, you, cast, you cast the right people. Yeah. At this point, Coogan could play the Henry role. Yeah. And have the right authority. Absolutely, yeah. Well, he could. I think he would want to be Lionheart. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I think everybody wants to be Lionheart. Yeah. That's the other thing, too. There's you want Lionheart in everyone, I think. Yeah. For everyone who's ever felt that they were not just given the right consideration or given the appreciation. Yeah. It's, uh, 
Yeah, it's in, I'm on his side. Yeah, of course, yeah. And you're a critic. I am. <laughs> but it's the thing that, yeah, this is my own, obviously my own drum to beat, but the thing that the film misses is that, you know, hashtag not all critics. We're not, yeah, yeah. We're not the worst people. Yeah, of course, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I, I mean, I know there are people who do enjoy just going after things and, yeah. and hating, uh, but that's no way to live. Like, if you're actually going no, to... No, exactly, for... yeah. When you think it's mean-spirited or just relentlessly yeah. negative, you think... I think you can sniff that out quite quickly, can't you, in a, in a reviewer? Yeah. You think that's not really considered... The worst ones are when you, you don't... Um, with theatre performances, for example, where everyone is laughing and you think, well, this isn't actually true. You know, you think you were not in the... I don't mind it when they say everyone around me was laughing, but I found it this or that, because then you think, well, at least it hasn't worked for you, whatever it is, but you've conceded to the fact that that night everyone seemed to be enjoying it. Right, right. Sort of a skewing of events is when it's not when you think actually not... I suppose it's how it affects the person, isn't it? You, can, you must be allowed your own opinion. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to evaluate things from their from their uh, their chosen footing. Yeah. If you want to make a comedy and you have succeeded at that, it doesn't matter if I don't like it. If everybody else did, I'll acknowledge this. Yes, yeah, yeah. There has to be some concession, I suppose. No one sets out to make something rubbish, do they? Yeah. No, no I, and I believe that. I, yeah. I, I think that's actually something people forget. Uh, yeah. It's easy to forget, I think, in the in the mix, because yeah. it's you know it's very, you can easily be vitriolic about things, but you think, well, it, they thought they were doing the greatest work, you know. Yeah. It's hard. It's a hard thing when you, I'm not, you know, when I'm just an actor in someone else's thing. It's such a, really, a weight of responsibility taken away because it's not my thing, and I can be the best I can be in it. But that's the end of the matter for me. Right. I leave at night, and no one else, someone else is worried about making the day and getting the shots in and then ultimately when it's presented to the world and you're not responsible but when it's myself and Steve's thing like number nine and you have that build up of it daring to present it to the world again and have we have we done it again or have we managed to because it's, it's you, you sort of can only arrive and, be, and surprise the first time you do it and then you're sort of always doing the thing you are known for potentially I mean I think right. we, we try to be very we're very mindful of repeating ourselves you know especially with the number nines which is like you know these anthology stories it's such a high turnover of ideas potentially you know we've by the end of this fourth series which we're filming now there'll be 24 pilots yeah and that's a lot of ideas and a lot of um worlds to continually create right well you're not working in it's not sketch comedy where yeah. you move on quickly. You're basically shooting a feature every week. Each week, yeah, and it starts again. It resets, and, and that's and that that in itself is the the reason why I think commissioners have, have found the anthology series, which is a very maligned beast, difficult to to countenance. I think on TV, it's why you don't get them anymore. They're, they're, the received wisdom is no one will watch a thing that ends, and then there's no reason to return to it. It's no hook. Right. The very thing that they are is the reason why no one likes them. But I think that's I think those rules apply are only in the minds of commissioners. I think people, normal people, just watch a thing and they don't have these things in their head. And if it's good, they will return to it. You know, and Steve and I anyway are, in the, are the thing that's sort of across them another hook. Right. Because our dark-ish um, sensibility is the thing that I think you would be buying into if you wanted to watch it again the next week. But it is hard, you know, writing one series with a little set of characters that then go over the six, much easier, in a way, mm-hmm. because you you know what they're doing, you know who they are. I heard via someone that was on a panel, when and number nine was being judged for an award, that someone from a certain television channel said, the thing about these anthology shows is they're easy. You can just... And it's much harder writing a thing where the, the characters develop. And I was thinking, you've got no idea. <laughs> it is the it's the hardest thing in the world because you are resetting and starting again. You've got another, you've got to do it again each week. So um, I want to kill him. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. fair. I think he's you've earned it. <laughs> uh, there is that thing, that weird. I mean, they're basically it, you can see it as a feature, you can see it as a short film. There are all sorts of ways to contextualize an anthology series that aren't derogatory. Mm. Um, and no one seems to have a problem with Black Mirror being Black Mirror. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's 
Absolutely, that's a great example. But maybe that's because that's a recognisable brand and that's the trick that... Yeah, it could be, or maybe it's the tone, you know, that, that sort of um, strange um, futuristic world that they all sort of inhabit is... Mm gets past the idea in people's minds that it is this different every week that's your hook right ours are, I mean number nines are completely different every week you know, there's always yeah even tonally some of them yeah totally different you know some of them much very silly and some of them very psychological and others very you know almost like Alan Aikborn very play play like and um, sort of domestic and then you get you know Pinterest one so we are very happy to complete and, and also with the how we make that television program as well. We we played with the form as well. We tried to do, uh, you know, we did the silent episode where we didn't speak for that week, and we've done we've done one in the fourth series. I haven't filmed it yet, but we've we've done one that's that plays with the time frame. It starts a bit like the Seinfeld episode. We start at the end and we work back. Okay. So, and how do you, you? I mean, with Seinfeld at least. I suppose, you know, Pinter did it with Betrayal. I guess yeah. it's not impossible, but you're introducing characters we've never seen before. Yeah. With Seinfeld, the joke is in the reactions that we already expect. Yes, yeah. How do you... Yeah. Yeah, well, it was sort of... It was it was thinking of things that you would... A trick I think we pull a few times is the idea of... You've seen something, you think you know how that could have happened, and then when you see the reveal of how it did happen, when you go back another 10 minutes, it's a surprise. That is that is where you get your surprise. Okay. You think, oh, that, that's, not what I, that's not how I thought they would get there with that, you know, so. And to do that with this story as well, it was a really complicated one to write, but, you know, we've written, we're sort of pushing the boat out with um, trying to do extraordinary things with this full series. So, yeah, it's an enjoyable thing. I mean, who gets to do it? It's like a play box, you know. We, each week, we, when we started writing the full series, we were like, we written about four or five of them. I think we had one left to do and we were, we were a bit stumped. We thought, what haven't we done? Because it starts to feel like we've done sort of a facet of everything. Yeah. And Steve said, we are, we are in the position of writing anything we want for television. <laughs> it's quite an amazing thing to me to suddenly realise that, you know, who gets that? And we're so um, undiluted as well. No one, we don't have a script editor. We write them and they are made. It's an incredible privilege, I think. No one ever really says, we well, can't really do that, or that's just a little bit, we need to, can this change? Because they're so tightly written and their own thing, to present them to someone, and someone go, I don't like that bit. It's like, well, I'm sorry, that's what it is. Yeah. You know, you can't really get your claws into it. And I think that's, we've had that for a lot of our careers, and League of Gentlemen was, was mostly, was so sure of itself when it arrived, because we honed it and worked it on stage for so many years. It was very... Um, it arrived and we and hit the ground running, you know, it was very... And that, I think, is what's wrong with a lot of things. You get that terrible thing of when you look at a new comedy or a new piece of work and you think, that was probably good once, and now they've, they've had a few, few goes at trying to cater for everyone yeah. and then catering for no one. Well, you see things you see it a mile down down into, into just a, a kind of a monochrome version of themselves. Yeah. Where all the colours are shaved off, where the actors have been told not to do a certain thing and so they're trying so hard not to do that that it infects the rest of the performance yes absolutely yeah it's um well with the with the League of Gentlemen and as with Theatre of Blood there's this sense that it's going to explode into something absolutely ludicrous at any moment but it never does yeah and the control is what makes it so disturbing absolutely yeah I guess even so even in a comic context with the League of Gentlemen it's, it's something that I had never seen before yes I mean one of the most it probably the league was probably at its best when it was live, mm. I think, because we would have palpable discomfort in the audience, you know, and yeah. we 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 prayed on it, and um, it was great to sort of bring people to the absolute brink of. It was like an endurance test, you know. We have such horrible sketches that became so uncomfortable to watch, and then that turn when you would allow them finally to have the release of a of laughing. Yeah because a punchline would happen. And that was a delicious thing to always play with. And I think we were at our best when those moments were happening. It was slightly... We tried to do it with the, with the TV versions of those sketches, which were worked very well live. But um, there was nothing more sort of powerful than Steve Pemberton playing Pauline to the audience. You know, they certainly yeah. were the restart room and they would play them. Yeah, he, he was a great performer, Steve. And um, those moments were fantastic on on stage but that was what we were trying to do you know that thing where you really 
can't quite fathom how you arrive at such an extreme situation from something apparently so mundane mm-hmm. initially, like a meal in a, an Indian restaurant that's a man finally pulls a gun out to tell them, to, trying to get a joke right. You know? yeah. And I think that was the formula we often would do, you know, that we would do something quite ordinary and we'd take it to the most ridiculous extremes. Doing it with number nine, even this series, where the paying of a bill becomes a huge, massive argument, you know, and it's, it is sort of... Um, and I think, you know, you, you're grounded in something that's very gettable. You know, people, people have been in the situation of, trying to, of arguing about paying a bill. So if you're in that world, you know it. You've got a, you've got a hook and a vested sort of... The stakes are higher, aren't they? Because you, you've, sort of, you've, had the, you've had that experience yourself. And I think we've, we strive, however grotesque the characters may be, to have a, a kernel of, of truth about them. And I think that's where everything suddenly matters more. And... Um, I think, and I think the film is going back to the film. It's it's sort of like that in that film. You get there's very there's very it's very moving. A lot of the film as well. That speech when he does the Hamlet speech when he's on the balcony, mm. and um, his daughter comes in and says, "You're only making them hurt you more." And it's a very moving moment. I think when he does his um, "To be or not to be," and they all watch him die, jump to his death. And that, that thing where you get sudden pangs at your heart as well we've tried to do in our work people were very moved by the episode with Sheldon Smith last season that we did called The Twelve Days of Christine which is very I think people were surprised that they felt so that we managed to upset so many people in, in, a, in, a, in a way that was you know I don't think people expect us to have heart yeah we have a black soul black piece of coal there instead like the Grinch but uh, so it was. I think it was a surprise to people that we could do it, that we did it, and that we could do it. So it was a lovely thing to have that because I think it, of all of the um, number nines that we've done, that stayed with me people the most. I think, and it's not particularly funny, but it was it was sort of a good one for being for doing something that we don't normally do. And I think this Steve wants to do a re- like a, a romantic comedy one, you know, that would be really. The twist would be would be that it would be that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be at all horrible. It would be actually quite sweet. I mean, that's certainly not impossible. Yeah, no, it's not impossible. I mean, it would be quite interesting to, to see if we can do it. Our problem is we try to write obvious comedy, or not obvious comedy, you know, it's not that easy to write any kind of comedy, but to write something broader. Mm-hmm. And we always find it's, it's lacking if we don't have some extraordinary dramatic turn or something that just sort of takes you by surprise on and I think it's, it's it's that thing that we've always wanted to do from watching Don't Look Now and Wicker Man and things that completely pull the rug from under you. Right. That's when it makes you sit up, isn't it? When you think, I did not expect that. And I think that leaning into something is the thing that we always try to sort of... We're, we're fans of our own thing. And I think we really try to sort of bring an element of... Um, you, you, you've really got to sit up and watch this properly. You know, there is comedy and there's, there's programmes that you can lean back and it's in the background and the laugh track tells you it's a comedy and it washes over you, but our things are very much more demanding, you know. I think that's just the way that we are with the things that we enjoy. But that makes it more interesting. I mean, yeah. as an, speaking just as an audience member, I want to be pulled in yeah. rather than told that I don't have to give my full attention to yes, something. Yeah. And even with... Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are plenty of comedies that I watch for pleasure... But I know that I'm not being challenged is probably yeah. the wrong word, but but well maybe not. I I'm, I'm the there are things that don't require me. Yeah. And they'll just function in the background, whatever they're doing, they're doing. Yes, exactly. No, it's and, great when you think, wow, they're really not talking down to us here. You know, we've really got to keep up. Yeah. And to dare to have a few moments where you are not told what you might be a bit confused, you know, that thing that most commissioners and script editors dread, where you are told to recap every two minutes in case you might go into the toilet or you've gone out to make a sandwich and you come mm. back. And you, you sense, literally, that you're being retold the whole thing again and again and again. Terrible storytelling. Now, if you did something that played on that, if you actually use gaps in time... Yeah. ...to... That would be quite good. I wonder if you yeah. could pull that off. I wonder if, conceptually, people would... It's funny, I mean, um, I've just done this play, The Dresser, in the West End. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that weird madness of theatre where night upon night you'd have the opportunity of thinking, why, nothing tonight on that bit. And yesterday, through the roof, who are these people, you know, what? 
that strange, very quick collective decision that an audience creates and have an identity and you think, I don't, it's like they're all whispered, right, we're all, we're all going to hate it, pass it. Yeah. Yeah. And they have that, and very quickly you can tell, you know, and it's that permission, it's an early, maybe an early laugh or something that gives, everyone relaxes and you think, oh, we're all right now, and suddenly then it catches fire, other times it simply doesn't. Or they think they really enjoy it at the end, think, who are you? You've been, you've made it so hard all the way through. Now you're clapping. I wish you'd been with me during it. I would have had such it'd been so much more easy for me. But um, and that's a really odd thing to, to sort of tussle with the idea that you know it's, it's not it's, is it that delicate? I often think it's not that finite that a slight thing here or there. I think there's a broad version of everything that sort of lands. Your friends come back after and say it was great, and you think it was an absolutely worst performance ever, and they thought it was brilliant. It's really strange. It's a skewed. Obviously, a skewed version of events when you're doing it and you're in it, you can't really tell the wood for the trees. Yeah. What that is thing of um, what's his face? Curb enthusiasm. Larry. Oh, Larry David. Going out and just going no, walking off again. When he <laughs> looks at the just to look at the audience and decide you're not, you're not for me. Have <laughs> the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's always strange for me to see live theatre because. Uh, there was a performance of 12 Angry Men about 10 years ago I think that I saw maybe 8 that had Richard Thomas from the Waltons and the, and the lead and the film is this tense taut yeah. experience and the play was received as though it was an episode of Friends Right. they were laughing at everything because right. all of the insults in the film all of the attempts to leverage power now read like Chandler and Joey Right. And it was bizarre. Wow. But it instantly made sense that this is how it was being understood by yeah, a contemporary yeah. audience. And no one could have like no one could have predicted that when the play was written. No. And the racism didn't land. Yeah. And the fact that they're really vague about certain things and that the play itself is really vague about certain things didn't work. Right. Because now we can talk about all those things and it was just odd and proper. Yes. That yeah, things yeah. were being discussed. Cultures change, texts don't. The yeah. dresser, I think, is, is almost preserved because theatre is still theatre. Yes, yeah. And in a way, I guess it, it yeah, it still landed as an idea. I mean, even if it was an old-fashioned thing that we don't get anymore, this idea of the actor-manager, which is, again, like Lionheart, going back mm, to the film. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it, it did, it, it's of its time, certainly, but um, it works, that play particularly, because I think it's about people and that, and that strange relationship not it's a horrible play it's quite funny play Norman's quite a funny character and I played Norman and mm. Ken Stock was uh, Sir and it was very um, you know it was a real tour de force for both of us to play those parts it was great and um, but by the end a brutal very devastating ending you know that whole thing where he realises he's given his life to a man that doesn't particularly care and that, I think, resonates, resonates with a lot of people. There's lots of people... I had lots of letters from people that would say, I'm a carer of my mother, and right. this relationship, I know it. I know it so well. And it was very... I think it was very cathartic for people yeah. to see that bottomless pit, that leaky bucket of not being able to... of nothing reciprocated, you know. Right. I think that's a lot of people's lives. Well, that is the great reveal of the dresser, too. Like yeah. once, you, once you understand what it is, yeah, and absolutely. that it isn't even a metaphor, that that's simply the relationship, yeah. it becomes incredibly moving. It was funny, Ronald Harwood, who still saw, still alive, and he was, um, came to the play, he was very complimentary, he liked it. He said, are you getting on with Ken? I said, yeah, yeah, we, we see what he said, because the, the Normans and the Sirs don't. I thought really? that's really interesting. He said it's like Salieri and, and Mozart. Oh, I suppose. The actors uh, don't get on. <laughs> and it's interesting because they're just combative, you know, all the time. And I think that's... I could see how that could happen, you know, it's, uh, but we were all right. But, uh, well, especially if you're doing it every night. Yeah, yeah, you've got to get on. Yeah, it's hard. Theatre's hard like that. Yeah. Can't I, have a war on stage. No. <laughs> I, again, I'm just thinking about the impossibility of doing Theatre of Blood on stage. Yeah. As you're talking about it, it's, well, it could be. No, I just... You could. I mean, that national version did attempted it, but it, it didn't quite do what that film did. I mean, it wasn't funny enough as well, I don't think seem to recall. Mm. I think it's... Um, I think they slightly threw away that brilliant idea of having that of having ten of them. I think there's ten in the critic circle or maybe something like that, but it just wasn't enough killings. Yeah, you really They did need. some good visual... They did some nice magic tricks. I think they killed... The, electric, the electrocution, I remember, was quite good. 
um, the, the head turned into a skeleton. But um, yeah, I'm not sure it really ever could match the film for being so. It's it's kind of perfect. I think you wouldn't want to tamper with it, would you? Yeah, structurally, I mean, as as one of you says on the commentary track, yeah, uh, it is. It, there's no fat on it. Yeah, it is murder bit, murder bit. Yeah, bit it really is. And even the, I mean, and very judicious use of the ongoing police investigation as well, which is really well done. But and sort of the bit I think, if you're trying to write it, it's the bit that you'd be least interested in because it's just, you've got to have it in the background. But they're not, they're getting no nearer. But it's done very well. It's woven in and out very very um, easily, isn't it? It's sort of there, but not. And they they don't advance themselves. And in fact, they're foolish. You know, they're stupid. Yeah. In there, it'd be great to have um, Eric Sykes in that part as well. Yes, and they think they're smarter than him when, in reality, of course, he's planning. Yeah, he's one ahead. Yeah. And the 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 best thing about all of these movies, especially the ones from the late sixties and early seventies, is how gleeful the villainy is. He yeah. has not only worked this out, he has worked it out to the point where he can play on Meridu's vanity to put yeah. him on a cooking show. Absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, outsmart the police simply by clocking someone over the head. I mean, it, it's really, <laughs> yeah. it's the simple solutions and these elegant flourishes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And nice little touches you know, when he's, he parks Eric Sykes on the, the railway track mm-hmm. and you can hear the train come and get him. So so horrible, but it's so it's very funny. Black, blackly comic in yeah. the best way, I think. Yes, I can hear a train. It's definitely yeah, a train. It's train. <laughs> yeah, it's right. So weird and formal. Yeah, but yeah, if it if you remade it now, it would have to be a film. It would have to be in period. There's no. I don't think there is a contemporary analog. You no, it'd be. It would sort of be based on an idea, wouldn't it? It'd be a vague idea of someone having a beef with people writing bad reviews or online about them you know would have yeah. to, I think you just couldn't quite do it in the same way like say it doesn't land in the same way the power of the critic maybe it does I mean I don't know about you know that great bit isn't there in Birdman with them <sighs> Lindsay Duncan oh. <laughs> ah, don't get me started on Birdman oh, uh, no, okay. no and not just because of the critic stuff yeah well no, I'm only thinking about that bit I like right. when he sort of confronts her and she's horribly in the bar which is which is a sort of faux version of I don't know whether they have that power anymore you know, on I Broadway they, yeah I don't think they not do. quite the, the same thing the that's oh there's a, there's an episode of Taxi of all things where Jeff Connolly's character is put into a rivalry with a critic who oh, right, goes really? to see him and at the end of the episode writes a uh, writes a favorable review of his performance and then tears it up in front of him and says no one's ever going to read that right. and all you can think of is but you have to file <laughs> that, yeah you have to write there you you can't it just I mean it's it's a great emotional beat but it makes no sense in the real yes, world yes yeah and Birdman to me every beat of that is the same and then the scene with Lindsay Duncan she's actually not wrong yes she's, she is saying things that are entirely valid although she's perceived as the villain as by the, the movie yes yeah, because yeah. Inaritu has clearly had a speech like this in his head yes for he 10 wants years. to invent it yeah, yeah. He, he clearly wants to do things um, that no one else has done before but right. he doesn't understand that the reason no one has done these things is because they're not necessary right um, yeah just The Revenant for example that, that could have been an hour shorter yeah I mean, it wouldn't have been the same film, yeah, but it would have been the pulp kind of story that it seems to want. Yeah, to yeah. But that's just me being pissy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but to to wrap up, and we've yeah. already sort of covered this, but I think it's a uh, it's it's worth hitting hitting head on. Uh, is there anything of Theater of Blood that you've specifically used or borrowed or stolen or absorbed into? Oh your yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are lines I believe that have been left. I think in. definitely yes. Um, the um, first killing with Michael Horden when he, he's trying to get the meth drinkers out of the old tenement building mm-hmm. he, uh, he's pushing them all with his brolly and he says we'll have no trouble here which completely is um, became Edward from the local shop in Lake Duncan we used it hello hello what's going on we'll have no trouble here that was stolen and then in Psychoville we had the characters of Maureen and David when David was a sort of would-be serial killer and his mum was egging him on and they think that they've killed someone so that, and they think that there's a set of people that have seen the, the murder so they in turn start to kill them and uh, try to get rid of the evidence and one of the women they um, go played by Janet Matia they go and they pretend to be in a beauty salon and they, they give her a makeover and they 
electrocutor, very much like coal. Yeah, completely. It's, so there's a lot of stealing going on in that, from that film into homage, as some people would say, but it's, it's all this stealing. <laughs> but it never, it never goes away, does it? The thing, the thing that you no. love about something, yeah. you find ways to celebrate. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, you know, you don't mind when people, when it comes from a place of love, I think. I think, you know, a lot of what we've have done, especially League of Gentlemen, was just, you know, even the, the hue of some of the, the colour, coloration of some of the scenes that we did, we know, we, we, we specifically said, we want it to look like Ted Millington Place, you know, right. a green hue to this. And that sensibility, especially with Steve Bendler, who directed it, who just knew, right, so this is The Shining, or this is um, Salem's Lot, you know, and we just, we'd say it was like that bit from, all the time. And uh, I think we just perpetuate the TV that we enjoyed, we're by trying to make it again. Yeah. That's what we're doing now with the number nines. They are, they're like Nigel Neal or Beasts or any of these things that we sort of grew up with. And it's people that finally, in the position of being able to make it, perpetuating it, you know, yeah. in, in keeping the, the, um, the flame alive for people, for people that know and remember. Yeah. Would you try? Could you do? I was thinking, I mean, if you have license to do anything, could you do Theatre of Blood as a number nine? Is yes. it possible? Well, you could do a small... It? Possibly. And we've done one in the third season. It's the last one that's going to go out called Private View, and it's about an art gallery. And a set of uh, people are invited to a private view of this art gallery, and they, are, they start to get picked off one by one. Yeah. So it's a mini Theatre of Blood in a way. So it's, uh, you know, and, and then they went on. It's right. one of those things where you think... They're all there's something connecting them, but you don't know what it is, and they've all been they all seem disparate people, but there's some greater thing that they've all done. So we sort of done a little version of it, but uh, it'd be great to do a a full on a full on take of something like that. I've, you know, we teams of people, you know, like Legend of Hell House, when you get these parapsychologists meeting and all the logheads. It's great. We've me and Mark Gates have always wanted to do a, a ghost. A haunted house like film, a proper exactly like that. Yeah, if we were ever going to do a film, a league film, I think now I think it would be a full-on horror, and it would be it's some sort of probably small budget, but you could do it in a, a haunted, in a, a reputed haunted house with a team of investigators. Sort of being done to death now, mm-hmm. but we've talked about it for some years that it's, it possibly could come round again. You know, oh, you, get it, you could get it right; it'd be yeah. great, wouldn't it? And that's the title: Done to Death. Done to Death. You've got it. <laughs> yes, that's it. Brilliant. Use it. <laughs> My thanks to Reese Shearsmith, who you can and should see in Inside Number 9, the third series of which is newly available on Blu-ray and DVD in the UK on the BBC label. The first series has made it to iTunes in North America, but sadly that's it so far. Oh, and thanks also to Alice Lowe. She knows what she did. You can follow Reese on Twitter at Reese Shearsmith, all one word, and you can find Theatre of Blood on Blu-ray and DVD in the UK with a League of Gentlemen commentary track from Arrow Video. In North America, it's available on Blu-ray from Twilight Time and DVD from MGM Home Entertainment. You can also find it on iTunes. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Let's, um, try to make it a positive one. Your life may depend on it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 